Aber you're our dad. And we open our hearts to you in this moment. Jesus, again, we declare in the room that you are Lord. You have overcome. You are the Savior of the world. You've made a way for us to receive forgiveness of sins. And you've gone ahead of us and you're releasing your kingdom in this world. Holy Spirit, we lean on you now. Would you speak? Would you not only impart truth into our minds and hearts, but would you bring us to the feet of Jesus and let let us encounter him now? Thank you. My grandfather was born in 1921, the son of a stonecutter in westerly Rhode Island. His parents were Swedish, hence the last name, Carlson, my dad's dad. And he grew up pretty normal, pretty normal life, but was part of the World War II generation. Went off to war, was in the Navy, served in the South Pacific as an airplane mechanic. After the war was over, before he was discharged, he was stationed in Kansas City and met a young nursing student, my grandmother, named Fern. They went to a dance, and that was the first time that they had met each other, and my grandfather was, was head over heels right from the beginning. And uh, shortly into their relationship, she, uh, she told him, hey, I'm actually not 20 years old. I'm, I'm, I'm 19. And then a, later, a little later as they started dating, hey, I'm actually not 19. I'm, I'm 18. And then one more time, <laughs> she was actually 17. Significantly younger, but it was too late at that point. And uh, they were married a little while later and ended up moving back to my grandfather's hometown of Westerly where they ended up uh, eventually living in the house where my grandfather was born. And um, that's where my dad and his four siblings were also uh, were born and raised. Now, fast forward a number of years until uh, I'm five years old. My grandmother contracted years before that uh, breast cancer. Contracted, that's not the right thing. You don't contract cancer. You get the point. She got cancer. Yep. And she died around the time when I was five. And my grandfather, you know, obviously lost the love of his life. And I never really knew my grandmother because I was so young, but she was just, you know, my grandfather was kind of that stoic Swede, very quiet, wasn't quite as quiet as his, his father, who I guess could go days without saying a word, according to my granny. But my grandfather's a pretty quiet man, but, but my grandmother, Fern, was just, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the center of the world of the family, always bringing people in, extrovert, love hosting people. And so when she died, it was just a major loss, obviously, for him, but also for the family. My grandfather uh, grieved her, and one of the ways that he, that he did that was he just started taking long walks. 
and he would just walk for miles kind of all over town. Uh, I'm sure many of those hours spent kind of talking to the Lord. <clears throat> Fast forward to when I was 10. My grandmother, uh, re- I'm sorry, my grandfather reconnected with uh, a woman that he, had, that he had known for a number of years who was also uh, had lost her spouse. She was a widow. Her name was Mabel. Oh, and Mabel was such a delight. She loved all of his grandkids, and she would bring us over and have, like, baking parties, and uh, Mabel was just the best. You know, kind of fun to have this grandmother figure that you get to call by her first name, you know. Mabel felt so cool when you were 10 years old. And eventually, just, you know, as their relationship went on, uh, they, they got married. I remember, you know, just the, that big celebration as a family, you know, my grandfather just losing this, this wonderful woman and my grandmother, but then the Lord bringing along this other wonderful woman. Uh, six months later, uh, Mabel died of a heart attack. And I can remember being at the funeral as a, as a young child and just watching, you know, everyone just weep and um, just feeling, not really totally feeling, but in somewhat feeling the loss that was there for my grandfather. I tell you this story, uh, my grandfather lived till he was almost 94. He just missed his 94th birthday. He, was, he, he died right before my second son, Wes, was born in, in 2015 and went home to be with Jesus, where he's happy now. Um, but I, I asked the question today, what, what do we do in the face of great loss? How do, we, how do we cope with trying to just live life and do all the normal life things and get on with, uh, with our lives and moving forward when all we want to do is just go back? To go back to what it was that we had that has now, has now been taken away. And oftentimes, you know, I don't know if you reminisce about your childhood and think about, you know, kind of the good old days when you were a kid and, you know, had no worries or, you know, life was easy. We often have that same tendency just to think back to how good life was and find it hard to move forward amidst the loss or the challenges that we're facing day to day or in certain seasons of our lives. And how do we do life and process all of this in the face of great loss. So I want to remind you again, as I've done, I think almost every week since the start of this year, God's word to us as a people is to rejoice always for 2019. God is taking us on a journey to bring us to a greater place where we can obey what the Bible says. And when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say rejoice by a man who faced much hardship and loss in his life. And as again, as, as I have sensed from the Lord, if we can do that, God is going to bring us to a year of vision in 2020 where he's going to allow us to see the path forward to really start taking ground in this city, seeing his kingdom come. So we've gone through a, a journey of the book of Philippians. Then we talked about complaining and how complaining is the devil and following the Israelites through their wanderings in the desert. 
Uh, then we looked about how, you know, the goodness of God is really his glory in the book of John and leading to Easter. And now we've been doing this exciting and really awesome series in the book of Lamentations. Okay? Probably one of the hardest books in the Bible to read. Unless, of course, you're going through that. Then it's very helpful. And we've said, hey, subtitle of this series, How to Worship While You Weep. And again, that's really what we are working on as we walk through this. How do we stay connected to God, not turn our back on him or push him away in the midst of facing a lot of loss or hardship in our lives? The book of Lamentations was written uh, sometime after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. As I've said these past few weeks, many people attribute it to Jeremiah. Some scholars that I read think probably not, but a contemporary, possibly a priest, and someone that, that lived through the horror of that experience of the, 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 the fall of Jerusalem, the burning and the, the, the destruction of the temple, exile of the best and the brightest, just death, all kinds of horror. Um, and the structure of the book is five poems. We're in poem number four this week. Each poem is an acrostic. The Hebrew writers would you know, start the first line, the first verse with the first letter of the alphabet, and then the second verse with the second and so on. And so we're going to see that again, 22 verses in chapter 4 today. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn to chapter 4? We're going to read through this whole chapter. So stay with me. It's a little long uh, and fairly intense in terms of its content. All right, this is Lamentations chapter 4. It's right after Jeremiah in the Bible. Kind of in the middle, about two-thirds. All right. Lamentations 4. How the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. How the precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now lie on ash heaps. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. Their princes were brighter than snow and whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rubies, their appearance like lapis lazuli. But now they are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as a stick. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children, who became their food when my people were destroyed. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the peoples of the world, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed within her the blood of the righteous. 
Now they grope through the streets as if they were blind. They are so defiled with blood that no one dares to touch their garments. Go away, you are unclean, people cry to them. Away, away, don't touch us. When they flee and wander about, people among the nations say they can stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are shown no honor, the elders no favor. Moreover, our eyes failed, looking in vain for help. From our towers, we watched for a nation that could not save us. People stalked us at every step so we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us over the mountains and lay in wait for us in the desert. The Lord's anointed, our very life breath, was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow, we would live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you who live in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup will be passed. You will be drunk and stripped naked. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile, but he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. One of the things we hear in this chapter, obviously besides just the the horror that it's describing, is this kind of, this is how things were, and now this is where we're at. You hear the description of kind of some of the people there, the things that they experienced back in the good old days, And now the horror that they have experienced and the consequences that are flowing out of that. Why did God do this to the nation of Israel? His own people, his own child, right? Set apart the descendants of Abraham, his chosen people. He he put his temple in their midst. Well, the, 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 the chapter answers this question in verse 13. And this is why the book is not dealing with kind of the why question that we always deal with or often deal with when we're going through something difficult. It says, It happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed within her the blood of the righteous. It contrasted earlier in the chapter just the the sin of Sodom and the sin of Israel being greater than that city that God destroyed in a moment with fire. And so in a sense, the punishment that Israel is now receiving is also greater. And it's not describing all of the things that were going on in the city, but child sacrifice was probably happening at that time, you know, cult prostitution, and then as it's citing here, the oppression of uh, the, even the righteous and the poor and the alien as well. So just horrible sin that's happening. And again, just to reemphasize, God spent hundreds of years warning the people and trying to get them to turn away from what they were doing. But as we read in the book of James, sin leads to death. And that is what the people are experiencing in this, the horror of war and the destruction of their way of life and their people. The question that we often ask that doesn't necessarily have a clear answer like in this chapter is, well, why does God allow evil in my life? 
Why has he allowed a great loss? The first thing I would say to you is, I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know why, whatever it is that you have gone through, I don't know why that happened. Big picture, zooming out, there's reasons why. But for us as individuals, we often are not going to get an answer. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about God allows evil in the world because he wants there to be love. And love requires freedom. If there's no freedom, there is no love. There's no ability to choose to love someone else. But freedom obviously opens the door to us choosing the opposite of love. In our, in our world, the, the Bible explains that. Adam and Eve were put in the garden. And God said, hey, don't eat from this one tree. They were deceived. They went for it. And evil entered, entered the world. Evil did not flow out of God. That was not God's heart for the world. God is not the author of evil. But he's created a world that has allowed evil to exist because he's created a world with beings that are capable of love. And as we saw last week in chapter 3, even in the midst of this punishment that God is bringing on the nation of Israel, it says, God does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. I guess what I'm speaking is truth. You hear the rain? Mom. All right. And secondly, I just want to say that the world, because of that, is just broken. All the things that are happening around us, right? The earth itself, the physical, the physical nature of the earth, as we see with, you know, ozone layers and global warming and everything else, itself is breaking down because of the sin of humans. God is bringing the solution from the ground up, not from the top down. In other words, we often, in our place of difficulty, want God to step on the stage and say, Stop! Enough! That's it! But as soon as He does that, the play is over. When the director stands on the stage, it's done. And so God is bringing a solution that oftentimes we don't like, but it's the one that is going to work best. And that is, Jesus entered this world. Not just to bring us to heaven, but to bring heaven to earth. He was the seed of heaven. The seed of heaven was planted in a woman. It grew up to be a man, right? Jesus. Releasing the kingdom of heaven all around him. Ultimately, experiencing the full extent of the horror of this world by dying on a cross. He laid his life down that we would have a new relationship, a new covenant with God. 
of forgiveness of all of our sin. And not just that, but then when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, takes that place of authority on the throne, he releases the Spirit to bring his kingdom into this world. And so God is on the move, not through control or force, but through love, to make all these wrong things right. But so, guys, that, knowing that kind of macro-level answer, as we've said in these past few weeks, doesn't really help you in your situation. Because it doesn't bring what you had back. You're still over here. It's still gone. There's still a loss. And it still hurts. So a piece of this, of what we've been talking about, there is a piece there that we need to hang on to. As we've said, the process of of grieving this loss is first getting real with the facts then getting real with our feelings. We're not denying what happened. We're getting, this has happened. This was a loss for me. This was difficult. And this is what I felt going through that, the facts and the feelings. And engaging in kind of this, okay, why does God allow evil in the world? That can help us and bring us to a place of faith. Where we say, okay, God, I can start to believe maybe that, you're, that you are good even though there's evil in the world, even though I have experienced loss in my life. But ultimately, we need to get to this last place of friendship with God. And we can move from a place of faith into a place of relating to God well. So how do we do that? I want to go back again to the the nature of the loss in this passage. As I've said before, these guys, this author, I mean, they've lost it all. Not just loved ones, not just, you know, watching potentially one of their sons or daughters go off into exile. They lost their identity as a nation. They lost this city that was destroyed. They lost the temple and the very presence of God. So their, their religion, so to speak, But even this verse, verse 20, the Lord's anointed, most likely referring to King Zedekiah, who unwisely and cowardly fleed the city during the siege at night, was captured, they killed all of his sons in front of him, then put out his eyes and sent him off to exile where he died. Now, that would shake you, obviously, if that happened to your king, but so much more for, for a Jew. Because the promised Messiah, right? All the way back to Genesis 3, that was then reaffirmed to Abraham that one of his offspring would bless the nations. And then in 2 Samuel 7, God tells David, you will not, you will not lack one on your throne. Right? Someone on your throne will reign forever. And here's the king killed. It brings into question the whole redemption story. And so here's this author just emoting about this experience, looking back to the good old days, seeing what's here, and, and this is the question mark of, is there any hope in the midst of this hor- horrific loss? And here's the thing I want to highlight this week. It's such a small thing, 
But in Lamentations, man, you've got to grab on anything that's there that has any hope, okay? Verse 22. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile. Obviously, if we fast forward and read a little more of the history, you know, in the Bible, we find out that that's true. That happens, right? They're exiled, but then God brings them back. He reestablishes them. They rebuild the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah. And then obviously that paves the way for Jesus coming. And so for us, we can hear these same words, though, as a promise from God. Your punishment has ended. There is no more punishment from God. Jesus has done away with that. When you are going through difficult things, it is not a punishment because you've done something wrong. Yes, there are consequences. When we do something wrong, oftentimes we reap what we do, right? If I go steal from a bank and I get arrested, I will probably go to jail. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God is not in heaven meeting out punishment to try to get you and punish you because you've done things that are wrong. That is not how God operates. We have a new covenant of forgiveness. And God is working with us to bring us into his kingdom and to help bring his kingdom to earth. And as we walk this earth, it says here, he will not prolong your exile. We are all still experiencing the exile of this world. The whole creation redemption story is a story of exile, right? Adam and Eve sin. They're cast out of the garden. They're exiled outside of it. But God is making all things new. I want to read from uh, a passage I've, I've talked about in this series. But this is what we have to hold on to in the midst of great loss. This is Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It's a heavenly city prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, in the midst of loss, sometimes it's difficult to even believe that this could possibly be true. How could every tear one day be wiped away? All the, the, the stuff that we've experienced, the people that we've lost, you know, the, the question mark of, did this person that I loved wind up in heaven with Jesus? 
How could it be possible that every tear would be wiped away? I don't know. But that's what the Bible says. And I'm going to believe it. It's the promise of God. We know that he is making all things new and one day it will be done. There will be no more pain or suffering. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about the, the, the gospel, he speaks this word about Jesus, quoting from the most, the most quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old. I said to my Lord, sorry, how does it go? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Paul says that that is Jesus reigning. And he says the last enemy to be defeated is death. And I take that to mean that the kingdom of God will advance on this earth until every enemy is made a footstool for his feet. Now, if you want to argue about whether it's going to happen, this rapture deal and then a millennial reign, or it's just progressing now, fine. But Jesus is on a throne. And he is making all things new. And in your pain and in your loss, he is with you. And there is a promise that someday it will all be made new. Someday there will be no more tears. Someday there will be no more crying or pain or death. Because Jesus has overcome. Now, the key as we respond in this is to not respond in sin. In this passage that we read in, in Lamentations 4, I mean, you just hear the horror. It's hard to even read the verse. Um, I, don't, I won't reread it. But verse 10, about the nature of them, what, you know, just, you know, in a famine, eating their own children. It makes you wonder if, you know, sin leading to death led them to that place a society where child sacrifice was practiced, that people had no concern in, in a distressful situation, even for their own children. So obviously, you know, we're not struggling with that. But there's the same thing that is true there. When, when there is something that is hard in our lives, I think for many of us, it becomes this. We hold God at arm's length. Now, some people, although I I'm, I'm, would wager a guess, uh, our response is often we turn our back on God, but usually you don't come to church if you've made that decision. So that's another response to be to say, I'm done with you, I don't believe in you, we're done. But in the room, my sense is that many of us, when we've experienced loss in our lives, we've done this with God. Because we're afraid, right, to be hurt again, to let, to let something in and to experience the loss of that again. But guys, you know, anytime we do that, that that's not leading to life. We think that we are going to protect ourselves, but really it's making things inside of us worse. The only one that can, that can heal what's been broken in here and bring any kind of hope or joy down the road 
in a situation that's, that's whatever it is that you've experienced in your life, the only one that can do that is God. He's the only one that can give us that peace that we so long for. You know, I, I wonder, um, for us, we think, you know, it's kind of just, hey, what's the effect of this? But this is, you know, every atrocity that's committed by man in the world is because someone has done this or this to God. They have shut him out, most likely because of loss that they've experienced in their life. Right, you read about Hitler, okay? I think there was something going on with his dad, right? It just makes you wonder, what was going on in, in, in a man like that in his heart? There had to be this and this. God's word to us today is, hey, would you let me in again? Or maybe for the first time. It's not necessarily going to fix the situation that you're in or the circumstance or bring that person back that you lost. But God is wanting to give you his peace and to breathe hope into your life so that you can move forward. And what he's always offering in any situation is himself. And we see that most clearly because of Jesus. The ultimate picture and the ultimate offering of himself. Because it's exactly what he did. He offered himself up. He sacrificed his own life for us. So that no one would ever be able to tell God, you don't know what I'm going through. Because he walked that road himself. Let's have the worship team come back up. And that's my challenge today to us. As we've looked at this a number of different angles, my sense today is, is there a place in your heart where you've felt like because of that loss, you've pushed God here and you've not let him into some part of your world? or you've not engaged with him the way that you used to, or maybe you never even have. But I just want to say, today is the day to let God in. He wants to bring hope to that hopeless situation. I mentioned my grandfather. Um, <clears throat> the day before he died, he died in his house. It was, it was actually kind of a beautiful moment and scene. My wife was pregnant with Wes. It was right before he was born, and we went down with my son Sam, and we knew he was, he was close. I mean, he was back in his house because he had kind of been, you know, in hospice, whatever he was dying, but he just wanted to be in that home that he had spent almost all of his life in. And I just remember holding Sam, and, uh, you know, my grandfather just being there laughing, delighting in this great-grandchild. Guys, it would have been easy for him to die a bitter man. 
to lose his wife at a young age, you know, I mean 55, and then to marry again, to take a chance again, and six months later to have it all be gone. He could have died a bitter man. But instead of doing this or this, he did this. He opened his heart to God in the middle of the loss, and he found peace. He found joy again, although I'm sure those, the grief maybe never went away and the, and the feeling of loss and the longing for his wives. But he died in peace, and he died in joy, and he, and he did not give in to bitterness. That's the legacy of my grandfather. And I believe we can have that too today. Would you stand? Let's have the prayer teams come forward. And so Holy Spirit, we just say, you are love. And I call on you to invade this room right now. In the place of people's loss and pain, we are asking that you would meet us here right now. Keep us from bitterness and give us the strength in this moment to open our hearts to you. So some of you, I sense, you, just, you even just need to do this physically. You need to open up your hands to God and start processing with him and dialoguing with him and letting him into your heart. Others of you, I sense, you need to take a step and talk to somebody and share or even to say, please pray for me. We've got people that will be on the sides from the prayer team. I'm up here. But take the step of faith that you sense that the Holy Spirit is putting in your heart. God will give you his peace. He will. And he will give you hope for the future to believe that all things will be made new. Thank you, God.